Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we'll break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on the show itself. This week we will be discussing and only spoiling up to season two Episode one of Lost Man of Science Fantasy. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Talking. We're we're now doing Lost. We changed our mind. It's just a Lost podcast now. Yeah. No. Uh, we are doing season two, episode four of Westworld: Riddle of the Sphinx, directed by Lisa Joy, written by Gina Atwater. Though we will be talking about that Lost episode at some point. And we're uh, actually only going to talk about the tailies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone's favorite. <laughs> This is just a Taylor cast now. Sorry yeah. uh, if that's not what you signed up for. But um, I wanted to kick off before we dive into the to the meat of the episode, which uh, involves uh, someone we've already sort of gushed over. I wanted to say what I was surprised by. Okay, so when we first brought up the actor Jonathan Tucker, mm-hmm. Richard, I think you and I both were surprised to find in each other like someone who liked him <laughs> so much, right? We've been secretly standing all these years. Yeah, that we were like, oh, I thought I was super special in loving Jonathan Tucker. But like, what I have found out on Twitter since is that the, like, the Tuckheads are legion. Yeah. They're strong. Um, and we even got like sort of... Um, uh, told by one of our listeners, like, you know, that maybe our affection doesn't go back far enough. So, uh, Gabby Grice wrote in, 
Uh, and she said, okay, I need to jump on the Tucker Head train and remind everyone he was in Virgin Suicides. And I sincerely hope neither of you have James Marsden face blindness, uh, because what would be the point in even this podcast? <laughs> uh, she said, I spotted those cheekbones underwater in the first episode from a while away. Also, killer shout out to the seminal 90s film Disturbing Behavior from Richard. Um, and then she says some really nice things about the podcast. So thank you, Gabby. Also, someone on uh, Twitter pointed out that Jonathan Tucker was in the film Sleepers as I think like a young Billy Crudup is who he's playing like yeah. in the past or something like that. So I believe he was also cool. in Two If by Sea with Sandra Bullock and <laughs> Dennis Leary. Correct me the if I'm wrong. Is, <laughs> the point, yeah, no, he's in that. The point is, this guy's been around for a while. This is his showcase episode of the season. So, uh, you know. And like, he's going to be in the rest of the season. Uh, he's except, definitely yeah. <laughs> survived that thing yeah. that happened to him. Yeah. No. All right, uh, and 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 we're just gonna run down the episode. We're gonna divide it by storylines this week, just to for a little bit of clarity and and control. Um, you know that means maybe we'll reference each other, but that's how we're gonna like organize things this week. Uh, we're gonna get into some theories, but we're gonna kick off with the young William slash Jim Dello storyline. And this is why I made that dumb Lost joke at the beginning of the episode, because uh, anyone who watched Lost uh, knows that this has to be... Has to direct, be. Has to be a direct reference to the like famous cold open of season two, episode one of Lost, where you spent the whole first season like on this beach, on this tropical island, and then all of a sudden, we've got a guy on an exercise bike we've never met before, some fun retro music playing on the record player, uh, and then we find out that like it, the person who was in the mysterious hatch, sorry, spoilers were lost, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is a character uh, called Desmond Hume, who turned out to be one of my favorite characters, even though the actor who plays him is not great. So um, this, we get, I mean, the exercise bike, the record player, the mundane everyday activities of like making your coffee versus like pouring yourself cereal, which I think is something Desmond was doing, is direct, obviously, obviously reference to that. And it is really fun. What did you think of like how how much was your lost Spidey sense tingling when this this open happened? I, I had just this this tingle of nostalgia because like um season two was the first season of the show that I watched live because I watched the others on DVD because I'm you know, it was that long ago. It wasn't right. like available online. Um and I kind of did it in this like feverish, itchy-eyed marathon, and then then the season two premiered like the next day or something. So that particular cold open is like my first live experience of watching Lost. So I I, I felt like I was God twenty two again. I think it's it's such an iconic moment for that series, and I promise we'll talk about the actual show, uh, Westworld, in a second. But because it, it really represents, I mean, whatever you may think of what happened the rest of Lost, it really represents a way in which they're like. The question, the cliffhanger question of season one was like, what's in the hatch? What's in the box? What's in the hatch? And they're like, oh, it's a guy on an exercise bike. And I really feel like that set the tone for uh, where we were going from there. But uh, instead of a hatch, we've got, I mean, it's, it's a similar, it's an underground sort of facility. And we've got Jim Delos. Um, I like all of the looping imagery in this. You know, he's in like this round thing that affects, you know, effectively looks like a record. You've got the record player. And that tracking but, shot is amazing. That just does the yes. full, you know, 360. Um, yeah, it's and it's and it's and it's shot at kind of a weirdly like low angle. I mean, because they don't want us to see who it is. So it right. just has this kind of eerie, interesting effect. 
Um, and we should mention Lisa Joy directed this episode. This is her directorial debut. So well, hats uh, off to her. Yeah, beautiful, splashy open from Lisa Joy. How soon did you think this is a robot version of Jim Dell? I mean, they kind of give up the ghost pretty quick because his hand twitches when he's pouring yeah. the cream into his coffee. Um, and but I guess I I. Yeah, this episode is interesting. This whole this whole scene or series of scenes with um, Jim and William, because it answers a pretty big question about this season a lot sooner than I thought it would be answered. But it still does it in this like really kind of beguiling, interesting way. So I didn't really mind that they were like, oh, yeah. And like, this is kind of about immortality. Yeah, P.S. We're uploading human consciousness into robot bodies. But, Mm -hmm. um, and the way in which it ties to the present in this episode, um, that's another, like, you know, very lost technique of like a flashback, a flashback, a flashback, and then like comes together with your, with your modern day plot. And and Westworld obviously has done that as well throughout. But, um, it is, it's just so stylishly done. And, you know, we already raved about the actor Peter Mullen and the like casting choices there, but like, to have Peter Mullen and then Jimmy Simpson doing his like weird aging Ed Harris impression. Um, I think it all works like really well. And the repetition of it with the variation and giving you a little bit more info each time and stuff like that, I think is, um, is really fun. So yeah, I, I love this. Um, the music choice, an expensive one, I imagine is the Rolling Stones uh, play with fire. I think is what that song is called, uh, which becomes very on the nose later but uh <laughs> really? but it's yeah but it's like it's one of those songs that like is just like a nice fun song on its own yeah and then so then when it becomes like a little too on the nose i don't mind that much but um delos from the beginning here is pitching himself as sort of a devil figure it starts right at the beginning he has this one of his little lines that he repeats on this script is um you know if you aim to cheat the devil you owe him an offering and we've already talked about like the various messiahs we have running around the park people who fancy themselves uh jesus or the messiah so here we have like this devil figure lurking underground which is jim delos or more accurately like the concept of what they're right. doing, I think, yeah. is um, not actually Jim. That they're but, creating devils, I mean, essentially, or right. a de- yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and, and and the part where, they don't do it in the first iteration here, but the part where, where William shows him the script of what he's saying uh, reminded me of season one when Maeve was sort of shown a digital version of like all the various things that she was saying and her sort of like right. uh, freak out realization around that. But um, so here, here's a question yeah. about this conceit. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is different than creating a consciousness through the hosts. This is taking an actual person and somehow digitizing their essence or their, their, their being and putting it into one of these, you know, immortal bodies um, or semi immortal bodies. Um, right. So my confusion then is why would they have a programmed set of of like you know talk like with lines like dialogue you know because w- w- wouldn't this be a more sort of fluid like responsive person rather than someone who had been fed a script Yeah I that's a really good question I I don't know that I know the answer to that other than like maybe this is beta and in beta they have to sort of meld 
programming right. like, the consciousness as they try to figure out how to, because, you know, something we find out over the repetition of the scene is that, um, you know, basically like the, the host body rejects the, the implanted consciousness and that they, you know, they spend decades trying to get this thing to work. And, um, and, and so it like this testing, this fidelity of, um, if the consciousness fully acclimates to the host body, then you would get just Jim Delos, like right. talking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but that's a good question. And though the Jim Delos storyline is in some ways wrapped up in this episode, I can't imagine that the season is done exploring this particular aim of the corporation right like like this consciousness thing is still there's there's more to come with that and right yeah yeah not by a long shot i would say and um and i would say that um i think in this episode this episode opens up a lot of possibilities for us to reevaluate what we're looking at and we'll get to that um a little bit um when we get to the bernard stuff i think but um yeah so we've got like a middle interaction where where the jimmy simpson character looks a little bit older and in addition to like fun 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 times with Jim Delos bot uh, because I think in round two he does like this great dance routine. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. that's just yeah. like that's, amazing. That also <laughs> brings to mind another movie about isolated robot-y stuff, which is Ex Machina. Oh yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. I got a lot of Ex Machina in this episode too, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Um, but yeah, so it's he's dancing to this song called "Do the Strand" by Roxy Music and. Uh, the tremor is less in his hand, so we're supposed to see like a little bit of of progress. But this is where William also gives us some um, expositional backstory on what's going on in, with the Delos family, right? So like uh, Jim Delos's wife is dead. We don't care. We never met her. Uh, it's been seven years. That's awfully uh, cruel, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> well, who cares? I, I was I was thinking about this because um, we never met. Jim Dulles's wife and that's that's fine but it still bothers me that we've never met Dolores's mom like her dad is so important and in season one her mom is there like in that um massacre that happens at the homestead and right. on Dolores's loop her mom is there and we never saw her so I was like eventually we'll see Dolores's mom right like they just haven't figured out what actress they want for that right I was gonna say and they then, can recast you know with something yeah. big maybe they can bring in like Lena Olin. Uh, that's an alias reference. Um, they can do like whatever <laughs> they want to do, but like they are just have decided she's not important. So I was like, when I realized that we never met, you know, Juliet and Logan's mom, I was like, I guess she's, I guess they don't care that much about moms, but that's not true because Maeve is like uber mom. So that's fine. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Jim Dallas's wife is dead. And then they talk about, uh, William's daughter, Emily. And this is obviously going to be important later, but we met Emily briefly in that party scene in an earlier episode when she was like five or six. Um, but William says she's whip smart and capable. You asked me off air when I realized who the actor, Katya Habers, who is billed as Grace, but is not playing a character named Grace was playing this episode. It's when William William said she's whip smart and capable. You're like, who have we met recently? (laughs) Yeah. What what mysterious lady is whole whip smart and capable? And And I was like, oh. And we can when we we'll we'll talk about her her storylines separately, but like, um, that had such shades of loss to it and such shades of tailies, (laughs) even in specific, like the way that loss would introduce a new character 
was like, okay, here's this new person. Let's instantly care about them. But don't worry, don't worry. You'll find out they have some connection to this broader world. You know, just exactly. just wait for it. And I I don't mean that as a as an insult to at all. Like I I love that kind of like little you know introduction. I guess yeah, it's, it's fun. Well, and it depends. Um... I think sometimes they can try to do that with a character, and I'm like, guess what? I don't care. Well, but yeah. they did it. They did it so well with this character. We talked about this in her episode where she was introduced. Like that actress, the scenario, all of that. You're just immediately on her side and rooting for her and like her. So, um, you know, if she proves to be a villain, um, we'll we'll feel sad about it. Um, so they terminate that that uh, second Jim Dallas model that we saw, but it's definitely not the second model. It's like the, I don't know, 47th or whatever. But they, they terminate that one with fire, which just seems a bit extreme to like – burn that beautiful set to a crisp every single time like can't you just yeah like like you know? <laughs> like the furniture isn't part of the ip you need to protect like that exactly. seems, seems a little drastic guys um and then our last uh but hopefully not our last time we see peter mullen but our last uh, well actually not even in this episode but uh our last one uh, we should mention that goldfish in the bowl because obviously that's a nice little like mm-hmm. metaphor for him and stuff like that jim pours the creep perfectly good job jim uh william's here with the scotch but this time it's ed harris and um i just want to mention that i got a tweet from a listener uh recently where she was like my dad has seen every episode it was like right around episode two or three i think when it had aired she's like my dad has seen every episode and i still just had to explain to him that like ed harris character old William is the Jimmy Simpson character, young William. And I'm not here to make fun of that woman's dad. I'm just saying like, there are, I'm sure plenty of people watching Westworld who like, for whom that is still not like as evident as you would hope it would be. Hopefully this moment where like, you've seen Jimmy Simpson come in, you've seen Jimmy Simpson come in and then you see Ed Harris comes in and he's like, Oh, uh, and, and then obviously there's a lot of cognitive dissonance for the Delos, uh, bot because he's like, uh, who the hell are you? You look like Ed Harris and not Jimmy Simpson. What's going on? Um, but yeah, so this is the 149th uh, Delos bot. Yeah, and you kind of wonder, well, I mean, obviously they're pursuing this because they want to see if they can do it. And, and, and if they can do it, then they have, you know, the golden goose. I mean, that's, you know, everyone with money is going to want to do that. But like, you, you you kind of wonder what William's emotional connection to Jim is, you know, because it seems to kind of curdle into a sort of disdain, you know, I mean, oh, and, he, and he says as much, he's like, you know, you're better off dead, like no one to like you when you were alive. Um, but you, you wonder why he was bothering with it in the first place. I mean, couldn't they have done it with anyone, you know? Yeah, a- well, so um, there's part of it that feels like the ultimate betrayal of like, I'm going to take your company. Don't worry, father-in-law. We're going to fix you. It's going to be fine. But like, then he could have just terminated him after time three and like, it doesn't. um, But I actually think that what we see at first from young William is an admiration for Jim Delos. I, I don't know if I, I don't remember if I mentioned this on the earlier episode, but the fact that Jim Delos wears all black all the time makes me feel like William modeled his, like new corporate persona, his man in black persona, his bill persona on Jim Delos. But I think what we see in this interaction, which happens after his wife, uh, Bill's wife, Juliet's suicide is Bill really. And, and 
Bill, as played by Ed Harris, kind of said as much in season one. Um, Bill having a reckoning with what he thought was the lesson he learned from Westworld. You know what I mean? And when mm-hmm. Juliet died, he's like, shit, have I been like doing this wrong? Do you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he, so he, he mentioned that Juliet killed herself, um, in the bath. And then he mentioned, um, that Logan died. RIP, you know, like, I'm sorry. He ro- he rode that, he nakedly rode that horse <laughs> off into the great beyond. Into a uh, yeah. heroine sunset. But, um, I had been sort of holding out hope that we would meet an older Logan and it would be a really fun actor playing him. But, uh, yeah, like I, I- Ian McShane. <laughs> <laughs> Be great, um, but it seems like that's not going to happen. So, um, uh, a question but, about this time wise: yeah. when do we think this is? So, um, it's after it's after Juliet's death. I think it's like is it before he goes into this part the park the, this most recent time? I think it's right before right before he goes into, yeah. like right before he goes in the park the last time because so Juliet dies and the man in black uh, William goes into the park and sort of works out his issues by this is when he like kills Maeve and her daughter like he's just doing all this crazy shit and then he's like okay none of that is making me feel better he's like well what if I solve um, Arnold's maze what if I wake the robots to consciousness what if I do all of this stuff mm-hmm. and um, and also, and what if I destroy Westworld basically he's trying to destroy Westworld and and I think destroying Jim here uh, or at least shutting this project down is part of that where he's like what have I done all of this is uh, you know he says the whole enterprise is a mistake people aren't meant to live forever and I think this that means that this is the quote unquote greatest mistake that this character referenced to in episode two, he's like, Lawrence, where we're going is the place of my greatest mistake, this place of judgment, blah, blah, blah. And I think he means this lab, this place. And, and but. yeah. And, and I think that um, in the scene at the party where Logan is high and talking to Dolores um, and talking about how they're, 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 you know, they're fiddling and they don't, you know, they don't right. really know that they're, I think he's saying that like, they're going <laughs> to, usurp you know th- themselves as species or something like that you know so he I he must have known agree. what what they were trying to do what, what their end goal was i completely agree with you and um the the episode title is riddle of the sphinx and the the famous like riddle of the sphinx is that whole like what what crawls in the morning and walks and then and that has three legs with the cane. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Four, mm-hmm. four legs, two legs, three legs. Um, the answer is what is like. Well, not if you're in Jeopardy. The answer is what is a man, but uh, is is a man. And uh, you know, so I, I was wondering why that was the episode title, and I, I think it's because you have, like this episode forces you, as a lot of episodes of Westworld do, to question like what is a man, like what makes a man. That was my interpretation. Did you have any? Well, yeah, and I that? think that because it's it's such a central thing that that it has. Uh, um, I guess the riddle of the Sphinx could end after the you know what walks on three legs and what walks on none because they're dead. You know, so like that the arc of life yeah. is what life is. So if you just flatten that arc and it just goes on and on and on, is that still a person? And the answer, yeah. I think, is no. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So that is that is the first <laughs> part of the Jim Dallas. We'll see him one more time at the tail yeah. end of the next storyline we're going to talk about, which is the Bernard stuff. Um, we uh, Clementine sort of dragged Bernard off into the distance uh, at the end of the last week's episode. We didn't know where she was going. Now we find out she's taken to a lovely cave somewhere. Um, and, and what's, I think, really interesting about this is... We find out that Clementine 
we've we've seen a few hosts sort of speak with the voice of Robert Ford, but the fact that Clementine, who's this like sad lobotomized figure, um, is being controlled by Robert, like Bernard's like, oh, I think Robert had her drag me here to this cave, right? And I'm like, like so some of the robots are free and some of them are still like Robert's tools. Like what's the, who gets free and who does not, you know what I mean? Well, but I think a central question of the, uh, of the season is like, is, is any of this freedom real? Right. You know, because I think that the bigger, I I think Maeve is a separate uh, issue, but like with Dolores, it's like, this could all still be a construct of Ford's doing, you know? Yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. it is because I think that would sort of like be like, yeah, just kidding. Like this whole season has been about nothing. <laughs> but like, um, but you know, we, we don't know because it seems like there's a sort of tiered consciousness. Like Teddy is not quite Dolores, but he's not Clementine, you know? So it's all. <laughs> Poor dumb Teddy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. And it's also that question of like, okay, you're awake, but what do you do with your wokeness that is um, truly independent thought? And that goes back to that thing that Maeve says to Dolores when she's like, you know, vengeance or whatever is just another prayer at their altar and I'm well off their knees. And that's what makes us think that like Maeve is truly free and Dolores in indulging in her like righteous anger is still, if not technically programmed, still on a loop uh, dictated by her, you know, um, uh, like the people who persecuted her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, she's pretty devoted to a narrative. And yes, she's deviated from the narrative some because um, she's now like doing this little side quest where she's trying to save her dad. But right. like that could also still be part of the whole thing. So, yeah. Um. So we've got so just at, so we just had the reveal of like Jim Delos in a in a like his own little fishbowl underground blah, blah blah we had something else and then we get this other reveal right away which is that Elsie's not dead Yay. Shannon Wilbur's back I'm not like fully like I, I I didn't think she was dead last season because um if you if you like don't show a body hitting the ground like I don't believe they're dead you know what I mean we saw her getting like choked but we didn't see her die and so I was like holding out hope that she wasn't dead I'm not sure I buy like shackled in a cave with protein bars like i'm not saying it's lying to us i'm just like that's kind of a lame like where has elsie been shackled yeah in a cave with the protein bars you know i don't i don't think elsie was dead last season i think she was put in a drawer while they figured out what to do with her exactly <laughs> you know and <laughs> yeah, a protein yeah, yeah. bar fix it's, it's you know it's like wait so ford programmed bernard to kill uh sid sababit knudsen's character whose name right. i forget but he Teresa, programmed yeah he programmed him to chain her to a cave and give her like some <laughs> kind bars like <laughs> and a bucket yeah, and, a, um, and a bucket like that doesn't and, that doesn't yeah. track but oh well i'm happy to have her back yeah i'm happy she's back i think that's a little bit like hand wavy of of where she's been this whole time but um i mean i guess it's only been like a few days right timeline wise since he did this but uh she went through like i don't know 10 bars or so um <laughs> who knows how many buckets but uh you know, Elsie is, uh, and and I will also say this: I think Elsie is a kind character. Elsie has a connection to Bernard. Uh, she also has an intellectual curiosity; like she has all this sort of stuff. So I can kind of buy her helping him, but it's still like a little. It's a that is also a little bit of a stretch. I think. Well, and pra- like, practically you know. speaking, they need they needed to pair him up with someone who knew the tech. Because, yes, you know, yeah. to do this thing. So, like, okay, that's a good fix. She's a good character, good actress. Um, but something that I, that, that I thought that's, that 
was weird in, in these initial scenes between the two of them was like her reaction to finding out that like her trusted kind of advisor and mentor and boss was a host the whole time is like pretty minimal right like it really is yeah it's just kind of like oh you're a host okay like you know she doesn't even say it but like i thought that that because that that would be a pretty big reveal i would think to, to people who worked with him um but maybe in the panic of the moment she was just like i can't process that right now i don't know well if you like compare it to uh, you you brought up Teresa, like when Teresa discovers that Bernard, the man that she's been sleeping with, is a host. Like, sh- uh, you know, true, she doesn't like last long. She dies pretty quickly, but she has this like yeah. staggering, like, oh my god, something I mean, about it. Yeah, you that know? that remains like the single most chilling scene of, of the whole show so far. So good, so yeah. good. But like, yeah. So I think Elsie is just like a little too much on her feet mm-hmm. uh, in in this whole scenario. Those protein bars, um, I guess they really <laughs> <laughs> quick reaction but, time. Yeah. <laughs> But also, yeah, like maybe once again, I I think the the best thing I can attribute to is her like intellectual curiosity of like she's freaked out that he's a host, but she's also like fascinated. I think by this idea that this person that like she thought she knew is actually a a robot this whole time. But yeah, you're right. Uh, a glitching out Bernard definitely needed a, a a friendly tech. A lot of a lot of these people in the park are are hooking up with a tech. Uh, you, know, you need one on your team. Yeah. Uh, you need a you need one of those tablets out in the field. It, but, it's like um, how Kate and other people could like unlost. Were like, I know how to track things, and I was like, What does that mean exactly? Like, <laughs> yeah. like how how many people in America are like that good at like tracking through like jungle wilderness? But okay, exactly. sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need a, tr- a tracker and or a tech. Um, so. She helps Bernard and she immediately identifies what he needs, which is like he needs the cortical fluid to stabilize the thing in his head. And um, and then what happens next is like Westworld going as Westworld as it possibly can, which is Bernard remembering a time that he went that he found a random door in the wall of his cave Um and then even later, we'll find out that maybe what we're watching with Elsie and Bernard is not also not the present. I don't know. It's a lot of it's a lot of timey wimey stuff to to swallow. But in the in the midst of all of that, we get huge revelations about um, related to the Jim Dello stuff about this is a lab where they are uploading consciousness to um, these mind eggs. I had someone who knows these kind someone from production who shall not be named told me that the in universe name for this or the show name for these things are chestnuts i've been calling them mind eggs but i guess the show calls them (laughs) chestnuts um and there was an episode in season one called chestnut um but that's there's the white ones which are for the hosts and then there are the red ones which are the ones that consciousness has been uploaded to and they this is a they find a facility basically where they've been making these red chestnuts <laughs> you want to call them that sure and uh there's been a massacre right there's just like dead texts everywhere and some of those creepy drone hosts and um you mentioned yeah. in your show notes the vitruvian man yes the, like one of the texts is sort of impaled on a circular thing that makes him look like one of those uh, Vitruvian men, sort of. The Da Vinci uh, drawings. The Da Vinci drawing that we see in, in a lot of the Westworld yeah. logos and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah. So, uh, what did you think of all this, like, 
tech expositional information sort of coming at you fast. I like it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think I think that the show, you know, again, we talked about in an earlier episode about like how the first season was them kind of being like, all right, so we have this cool idea, but we don't really know what the show is about. Right. Uh, and then the second season is now clarifying that. And I like the choices they're making. I like what it's about. I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think in a kind of weird way, it's plausible. Um but I have to say one one detail. I don't like think that these like drone hosts are like as like cool as the as like the or like creepy as their as the, the kind of producers think they are. Like I watched uh. this whole like YouTube video that was like a behind the scenes thing about like the making of the drone hosts, and it was interesting to see how they did it with these like latex costumes and stuff. But like, I mean, they're fine, but I don't really know why they would be built. Like, you couldn't you just make a person like and, and just program them to be a drone. Yes, I guess like to distinguish them, maybe. Yeah, from, okay, that's fair. Um, I do find them creepy, less so this time when it was just sort of like still and then came running at Elsie and she shot the shit out of it. And I do like that Elsie's ready to use her gun. But um, I did find it creepy when it like loomed up behind Bernard in like the first reveal of it. But maybe if we hadn't seen it like in all the promos, it w- that yeah, reveal yeah. would have been like even creepier. Um. But yeah, and so then like Elsie notices this lab and this is when Bernard starts glitching and is like, A, I've been here before. Like, mm-hmm. we already knew that. And I was trying to like figure out by his outfit when that happened. I was like kind of pawing through season one photos to see like if I could pin an episode where he was wearing, it's just like it's a tie and a blue shirt and a jacket, which is different from the vest and no tie that he's wearing in, in the uh, whatever timeline you want to say. Um, and I, I couldn't quite pin it because Bernard has like, this is his style. It's like <laughs> yeah. separate basics all in a neutral black, gray and blue palette. And like, this is all he wears. And so like, he does wear similar things in season one, but I couldn't be like, Oh, clearly he left that conversation with Teresa and then went zombie walking into the desert to this cave. Yeah. Cause that, that's what we're seeing from him is like this <laughs> sort of sleepwalk version of Bernard that we've seen. We saw in season one, whenever he was like fully under the control of Ford. There, there could be like a, a funny, like a lot of d- deleted scenes, which is literally just Jeffrey Wright walking through a desert for like hours because like he's just <laughs> c- c- transporting himself around the park, doing exactly. his little like d- weird deeds, doing his little Ford errands. Yeah. But um, Elsie draws a comparison between the coding for the red chestnuts and the coding, um, or Bernard does in the coding that's in Abernathy. So it's like the, you know this is this is some advanced tech that Delos is aware of, but some of their top people in Westworld like Bernard and Elsie have never seen before. Um, Elsie points out that Bernard is adrift in time and can't tell which memories are new, uh, which is fun for us trying to watch the show Mm -hmm. and figure out when and where we are. Um, And then Elsie wants to go in this other room in the lab. And Bernard, I don't know, from wherever in time is like, no, wait, stop. Don't do that. Um, But they go in anyway. He says maybe we don't want to know what's in there or maybe we shouldn't know or something, which is which is like a kind of like that sort of like don't open that door sort of that's like a a trope that I find very like effective, you know, Um, but uh, I don't understand necessarily why they wouldn't want to, you know, like, like what what's the problem with knowing this actually it helps them to know this. But anyway, yeah. Um, I agree. I agree with you. It made it ominous, but maybe doesn't like logistically track. But right. uh, if you thought any of like the times that Jim Dallas referred to the devil was like subtle hell imagery, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we're we're now full event horizon. <laughs> yeah. 
in this scene. <laughs> oh my god, it is Event Horizon. That's so funny. I didn't think about that. But yeah, so the the whole we we realized that the the room they're trying to get into is the room that we've been seeing this whole time where Jim Dulles is. All the lights are red, so it, it looks hellacious. Uh, William decided for whatever reason not to burn the last version of Jim, but let him just hang out. And he has murdered, you know, his minder is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and clawed his own face off or tried to. And uh, is still on his exercise bike because you got to keep your cardio going. <laughs> and um, and he has- <laughs> he's a, he's a, <laughs> a, you know, example for us all. Yes, yes. Uh, be like Jim Delos. Even when you're calling your own face off, make sure to get on that exercise bike. Uh, the Rolling Stone song is like creepily looping, I believe, on the Play With Fire lyric. And uh, he says, I'm all the way down now, which is, yeah, great, creepy, Event Horizon-esque um, uh, dialogue. And then he attacks them. And Elsie is sort of overwhelmed, but Bernard doesn't really seem to hesitate to to kill him. And so, so the, yeah. the idea here is that when this consciousness is uploaded to a host yeah, and it starts glitching out, it doesn't just cease functioning. It like keeps going. It just becomes something else, which is sort yeah, of an it, interesting um, idea. And, and it has probably some broader implications that you can create this kind of like demonic entity. Yeah. It feels like it's madness is sort of what yeah. it's kind of seems to manifest as with some glitches. Um, before he dies, and once again, bravo for casting Peter Mullen in this role, Jim says a bunch of fun stuff about the devil. He was like, you know, they said there were two fathers, but when they were looking in the water, it was just a reflection. There was only the devil, like, looking up from it's below. It's a beautiful piece of writing, I think. It's I mean, it's a little so heavy-handed, but, like, I really, yeah. like, the, the idea of, like, we, they, when you're in the bottom looking up, it was it was just a, re- like, that's a, the reflection. That's a really evocative. Um, yeah, and, and I, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, and beautifully delivered by um, Peter Mullen. Yeah, and I it was so beautiful that I was like, "Is this Milton? What am I hearing right, right now?" Right, exactly. I, yeah, I yeah. googled it and I was like, "No, it's a it's a Westworld original." It's, but yeah. um, the uh, and so then the conclusion of this storyline is that Bernard realizes the last time he was there in that lab, he was there from the direction of like by Ford's command to print a new red chestnut for someone else. Question but, mark, question mark. But who? Uh, yeah. and, and then he's the one responsible for that massacre in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, we see him like stomping on a guy's head, basically. Um, do you have any theories about who uh, belongs to that red chestnut? Um, I don't think it's Ford because I think he wanted to die. I agree. Um, so past that, I don't know. I'm wondering maybe if like... Is Dolores based on someone? Like, is she is she re- like you know is she a, someone that he wanted a consciousness to be uploaded to eventually? I I don't know. Um, do you have any theories? I my fun theory <laughs> is that it might be Arnold. Um, oh, of course, and if, yeah. And if it's Arnold, like you know, I think we talked before about we're not sure who that character on the beach that we're seeing um, at the beginning of the season is right. Because like Bernard has this scar on his forehead and the guy played by Jeffrey Wright on the beach does not have a scar on his forehead. Is that, um, you know, some fun theories. You're the one who first like uh, implanted the idea of the, of of the Trojan horse for the season. Mm -hmm. 
So this idea that someone else is inside that body, it's not Bernard glitching at someone else. So could it be, um, could it be a white chest that belongs to Dolores? Could it be a white chest that belongs to Maeve? Like who, who is posing as Bernard in that scene if that's what's happening? But then watching this episode, I was like, dude, what if it's Arnold? <laughs> like, like what if it's the consciousness of Arnold put in a like Arnold body and, and the glitches that we're seeing are those adapted challenges that we've seen in this episode with Jim Delos. You know? It could also be the smoke monster in human form. I, I think it is probably the smoke monster born from Melisandre, <laughs> gone through Lost and is now in Bernard. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's my current pet theory is that uh, like in season one, they fooled us by thinking we were watching Bernard and we were watching Arnold. And now I think they're trying to fool us and thinking we're watching, uh, yeah, Bernard again when we're and watching And it's some Arnold. version of Arnold, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I think, right. so... Uh, though I don't know why Ford would do that would bring Arnold back uh, it seems kind of cruel because Arnold also wanted to die you yeah. know what I mean yeah. so I don't know why he would do that it seems like a cruel thing to do to his friend I can't think of another human that makes sense to me um, you know unless it's like William <laughs> and like then Ed Harris has to face Ed Harris in the end who knows like, oh. maybe that's what he's headed headed towards his own immortality um so we'll, we'll find out in the finale probably but um for now we we know that that's the thing that's out there okay got two more storylines to get to uh one is speaking of Ed Harris and 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 Billiam Bill we've got um Lawrence and Bill uh, back in the town of Las Muras, where they went to in season one, where Lawrence's family lives. And uh, this seems to be about Bill, uh, I don't know, wanting more wanting more people or... Oh, yeah, they had to go through Las Muras because that's the way to go. But before they got there, sorry, I, wanted, I obviously want to talk about this railroad <laughs> encampment scene. Yeah, what the uh, hell was that? <laughs> that that's just like <laughs> brutality for the sake of brutality, right? Kind of, but I think one thing this episode is trying to do is like, uh, explore, you know, this the series uh, loves all its themes of oppression, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. um, I think, uh, and overthrowing the masters. And so I, I think what we get here in this scene and then with some of the stuff with the major Craddock character who, like, is really shitty to some <laughs> uh, Mexican people, uh, you know, this, like, you know, white oppressor sort of oppressed. So we've got yeah. these these Chinese laborers and they've put uh like the white people. I I think they're humans, guess, but they might just be white hosts. I don't know. I think they were them. hosts. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're hosts. Because I, I think William would be like e- more freaked out <laughs> if they were yeah. humans. But they've put them down as railroad ties. And I was like, well, that's a creative thing to do with the dead. Um and then, and then Bill also notices that the rail, since he knows the park so well, he notices that the railroad track is going in a different direction than it yeah. usually goes, uh, that it's going west. And he's like, oh, guess we're not the only ones going to a certain place. So, like, that reinforces the idea that a lot of characters this season are racing towards uh, the same end goal, right? Yeah, it's basically, it's a mad, 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 bad world. <laughs> it is. Um, or rat race, you know. Or, or, or um, rat race, which is not at all a ripoff of it's a mad, bad, mad, mad world. Exactly. Um all right, so then we... Rat uh, race, Jesus. 
I I have I have a weird soft spot for rat race. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna apologize. Okay, so then we get to Las Mudas and we get like a repetition of some of the stuff we saw in season one with the bartender mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff, all this fun callbacks. But there's an interloper in town. Uh, it's everyone's favorite star of Virgin Suicides. Uh, Jonathan Tucker is here. I got really excited for this because um, I was worried that like when he ran off, we that was it. Yeah. Um. He says that, you know, like Bill's Bill Riley knows that they've had like some chunks taking out of him and he's like, Yeah, some bitch named Wyatt and Bill's like, Good for her. So like, you know, Bill likes this murderous Dolores that uh, is he's seeing. So um So we're calling him Bill now, not William. <laughs> I well, I'm calling him Bill because that's what uh all the I'm calling him Bill to distinguish him from young William. Oh, that's fair. Because, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what like his that's what the board members call him right. and that's what Jim calls him. Right. So that that to me feels like post park William. He's like, call me Bill now. All I'm, right. I'm uh you know, I'm a Bill. <laughs> I'm at Harris now, know. so call me Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um and then uh we talked before about like this the Jesus imagery that's running through this season. I just think it's so interesting that like Major Craddock seems to like think he's a Messiah contender, but he's holding court in this church. He's sipping from a chalice at the altar. Like he's doing all this stuff. Not, I mean, not that that's necessarily something that Jesus would do, but um, I wanted to bring up this, this subject again of robot children and how they're a problem <laughs> because the actress playing Lawrence's daughter is demonstrably older than she was the last time we saw her. Um, and I think the same is true for the girl playing Maeve's daughter. And we already talked about that with like the kid playing for young Ford. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think you need to like kill more robot children is my point. kill your darlings, so to speak <laughs> murder, murder your baby darlings. But yeah. um, Bill, Bill sort of tries to strike a deal with, uh, Craddock and he says he knows the way to glory. Craddock is looking for the weapons that the Les Mudos people are are um, shielding. What I think the function of this back and forth thing is between Lawrence and Craddock and and Bill, as I, I'm calling him now, is to immediately position Bill as a more sympathetic character than we've seen before. Do you yeah, mm-hmm. like. Uh, he was just picking off hosts left and right, but now when Craddock does it, like he feels defensive and protective of them. Well, I think also because he was picking them off left and right when he was feeling sort of frustrated that there were no stakes. Yes. So, but now that there are, maybe he has a sort of different view of the whole experience because yeah. he could die too, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I, I also just want to be always aware that this is um, always Robert's Robert Ford's game mm-hmm. that Bill's playing, and so there's this point when Lawrence is talking to Bill in the church, and he's like, "Don't you have a daughter?" And I think that that's not just uh, to set us the viewer up for the reveal at the end of the episode. I think it's also like. Um, Bill gives him a look like to Lawrence like I mean I definitely haven't talked to you about this since you got reset so I don't know why you're bringing this up but also um, he's like Ford are you fucking with me through this robot it was right. sort of my interpretation of that look here's you know? a here's a broader problem of the show that I wonder yeah. how they're going to address is mm-hmm. in this episode we see and, and, in, and in some previous episodes we've seen Will, William slash Bill's interesting you know, complicated relationship with Jim Delos, with Logan Delos, um, with with Dolores. And so we understand all of that. 
But this elaborate game that's been set up with him for him by Robert and they have this kind of like oppositional relationship is that like we haven't seen them interact at all. And now we might not because Hopkins is not on the show anymore. And how do you cast a young version of him? No, because they've already used CGI to make it young. Uh, Robert, like, so I'm just, I, I feel like there's a kind of lacking in terms of understanding why exactly there is this, you know, um, sort of game that the, the two are playing back and forth, you know? Yeah, my understanding, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I agree that that's a challenge presented by the lack of Hopkins. And I guess we'll just have to like rewatch that one scene they have in season one, right. uh, you know, uh, to get our better understanding. But also, I think the the flashback episode where we see how William has engineered like basically a hostile takeover of Ford's company and turned it from whatever it was that Ford was doing with this exploration of AI into a creepy corporation that, you know, spies on its guests and collects DNA and stuff like that. Like that's a corruption of Ford's yeah. vision. Right. Um, and so like all of his resentment about Delos and the money men, which he, which is all through season one coming out of Ford, we can, imagine that he has pinned a lot of that specifically on William and sort of uh, engineer yeah. that as the motivation, but you're right. It would be more satisfying yeah. to see them in- interact throughout the year. Exactly. Um, I just, I mean, yeah. I, I, I understand that this sort of central clash between them, but like, I just, right. it would be nice if it was articulated like yeah. in scenes together um, because we get so many interesting, I, what I like about the flashbacks a lot is that like, it's fun to just watch people sit and talk versus, you know, riding on horses and shooting stuff, which is fun too. Um, so I just wish that like that was possible with between um, William and Robert, but I mean, maybe yeah, down I, the line it is somehow, but I mean, they can do great stuff with like mocap these days. And I'm sure they've got Anthony Hopkins head like scanned into (laughs) their databases. Um, The um, yeah. And so we get, we get William flashing to or bill flashing to Juliet's suicide. Like he remembers the suicide at some point when Craddock is like torturing these um, hosts. And uh, he says this thing to Craddock where he's like, uh, death decisions are final. It's only the living that waver. Death is always true. You haven't known a true thing in your life. And so it really does seem to pin all of this uh, change of heart in Bill to the death of Juliet, like the death of Juliet and his guilt around that death um, has changed his mind about uh, immortality and dabbling with it and stuff like that. Um, and then he's, he gets a fun, like poetic, like you, like you've been sitting, death has been sitting across from me this whole time. So he has positioned himself as death. Like that's, we've, we've been talking about devils and Jesus and stuff like that, but, but Bill is thinking of himself now as like, as the representation of death. And, um, he takes out Craddock or he lets Lawrence take out Craddock. And, uh, Lawrence rewards him by giving him, I mean, like this is, this is something that Ford said is like in the pariah scene that we saw, he's like, no, you have to do this alone. Um, and then after Las Mudas, like, uh, he's, he Bill's not alone. He gets Lawrence and his cousins are like with him. And, uh, it seems like to me, it feels like a reward that Ford has given Bill for unlocking a level of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so what I think from this episode is that the game, the door game that he's playing is about empathy for the hosts. I think that's what I think. What do you do? You have any- yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think in a weird way, Ford, I don't think Ford is trying to like destroy William at all. I think he's trying to get him to see some core truth that Robert understood about what this all is that William right. didn't. 
um, which is kind of benevolent in a weird way, um, but all the while knowing that like William could easily die while doing it. Right. And it's like a hard lesson. Yeah. Like, you know, once we get another avatar for Ford, which is Lawrence's daughter, who who was an avatar for Ford in season one, too. But, you know, she's like, uh, I think she says, if you're looking if you're looking forward, you're doing it wrong. You have to look back. Right. I think right. is something that she says to him. Another like oblique little clue. Yeah. If you're looking forward, you're looking in the wrong direction. Right. Unless uh, unless. Yeah. um, I mean, I guess this all could be programmed that like. William thinks or Bill thinks he can die, but maybe can't, you know, like it. Maybe he's already a host. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Season three. Uh, And then the last thing we get with Bill. uh, Oh, no, we should we should run through Emily's storyline really quickly before we get to this final encounter. So we we flash to uh, the character we were told is called Grace is not the Kachi Herbers character. Uh, She's being brought up in the ghost nation last time we saw her she's wa- washing up against like wa- washing up on the shore of westworld and a member of ghost nation was sort of standing over her um it um, is interesting then, that the ghost yeah. nation name because you have ghost protocol and rogue nation mission Ooh. impossible i don't know i don't think that means anything i just like i get confused but i i almost called them ghost protocol <laughs> but they are ghost nation when the rogue nation comes on again right. and gets mm-hmm. her, but she's been captive. And then we, we see that Stubbs is there too. And mm-hmm. like, this is something that I don't know we addressed uh, as clearly as we should have, but like so when Stubbs shows up on the beach in episode one, it's sort of a crazy moment because like Elsie, he was left on a cliffhanger last season. He was sort of overcome by ghost nation and we didn't know uh, what had happened right. to him. Right. And so this is like filling in the backstory and it anchors us once again, a little bit in the plot, in the timeline of like, this is happening like she got abducted by Ghost Nation, um, like uh, right around when Ford died, right? Right. Um, and so we're seeing Stubbs right around when, like, this is what happened exactly, you know, at the uh, what after what happened in season one, um, and then, you know, Grace slash Emily has all this stuff that makes us like her even more. Like she can speak the language uh, and Stubbs is like, what you speak their language. This, this to me is once again on that theme of like, um, like the people of color of the park and what is their story. And like, mm-hmm. you know, who are, who are like the shitty white people and who aren't. And she's like, you know, a lot of people don't pay enough attention to ghost nation to bother to learn their language. She's like, I don't like other people. And I'm like, Oh, I like you so much. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I don't like other people is basically my mission statement. in life. <laughs> and it's interesting that she clearly has been to the park so many times as has her father. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested to see what that's all about and like whether they're aware of each other being at the park at the same time or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to explore. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, yeah, yeah, and then that was part of, like, as we're putting the pieces together of this episode of, like, who is this woman? I was like, oh, yeah, like, it makes sense to me that that Bill's daughter, Emily, would have been, would be super familiar with the park, all this sort of stuff. And Stubbs is like, well, if we want to get out of here, we got to do this. She's like, yeah, I'm actually not interested in getting out of here. So, like, I think her mission possibly to find her father uh, but maybe she has something else in mind because we did see that she had like this weird little map that she was looking at so I don't know if she has like another another idea um, maybe she's off to find her grandfather <laughs> who knows right sure um, <laughs> who uh, she doesn't know has clawed his own face off at this point probably um, anyway and so then Ghost Nation tells tells the Emily character like we're going to find the first of us uh, and then we get uh, the return of Zon McLaren who we saw in um episode two uh as as the person who like originally pitched logan delos on the park and this time he's wearing like full ghost nation makeup and um i like this idea of the first of us because uh you know that's sort of like the dolores role elsewhere and ghost nation like has their version of that like this is their oldest host um and it's this guy so um and he says his character Kichita says this thing where he's, uh, to Stubbs. I think he says, "You only you live only as long as the last person who remembers you," which is a nice other meditation on immortality. Which really, uh, I don't know, sort of hit me in the gut, and I was like, "Please buy my book and read my book and give it to your children <laughs> and have their children give it to their children, so Richard, I can live forever." You'll be remembered. You'll be remembered, or maybe this podcast will endure maybe, throughout the generation. Do, do you think they'll still be reading old Real Housewives recaps in a hundred years? <laughs> God, I hope so. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so then we we get the the final moment, which is which is so once again, this is Lisa Joy's first like her directorial debut. Uh, Emily riding up with the sun behind her. Mm. She looks great, by the way. Uh, and then she just says like, "Hello, Dad." Uh, which is you're right, such a lost moment. And they don't um, seem that surprised to see each other. Is a is a thing. So maybe right. they've run into each other in the, at the park before, you know. God, I hope she didn't run into him when he was like in his like super murder phase. She's like, "Hey, Dad, murder any homesteaders yeah, today?" Dad, God, you know. <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, I'm going back um, to to India or whatever. Yeah, exactly, India world. I'm gonna go hunt some more tigers. Um, yeah. So this is a an episode full of reveals. I've watched it a couple times at this point. I really like it i this is like my favorite episode of the season so far i think mostly for that like jim delos lost shit which is my jam but yeah the the stuff in the bunker or whatever you want to call it was great and really like helped define the show and or at least the season and um you know again i was surprised that they would dole out this much information in the fourth episode of a 10 episode run um, but at the same time, when exposition is meted out that well and that elegantly and, and intriguingly, uh, all right. So I'm, I'm curious to see what they show us next. Yeah. And maybe what that means for Westworld is that it's not as concerned with, um, I mean, there's still so many reveals and twists and turns and, and I'm already like, 
maybe Arnold's on the beach, maybe Ed Harris is a robot, like all this sort of stuff. But like um, the um, maybe Westworld isn't as concerned as hiding things from us this season as it felt like it was in season one. You know, and yeah. maybe mm-hmm. that's that's what that's about. So I don't know. We'll see. Joining us today on the podcast, we are so lucky to have Jonathan Tucker. I wanted to kick off by asking you, so we're going to talk, this This uh, interview is going to go out with uh, episode four, which ended with uh, in a fiery way for you, it's safe to say. So I wanted to talk to you about that episode specifically. You got to work with Lisa Joy on her directorial debut. What was, what was that like, working with Lisa Joy? She's such a passionate storyteller and she's so excited about these characters and this world it wasn't a surprise to me um how what a facile adjustment um it was from the writer's room to you know physical production she's so sensitive to human beings and to actors and she understands that there's that you know there's something unquantifiable um that happens or that it, that's that's um, exchanged between the below-the-line crew and what ends up happening um, in front of the camera. So when you treat people well, <clears throat> you treat your crew members well, and this is not just the people that you know directly affect um, the shot, but, you know, the drivers, the hair-makeup team, the electric department grip, when those people feel like they're of value, there's something special that gets put into the into the food so to speak you know it's like needing love into the food and she she brings that respect for all them too so you get a really positive experience with her and um she's just she's just one of the most lovely human beings i've ever had the chance to work with westworld is notoriously secretive like some of the main cast or I think all of the main cast don't get all of the scripts, or at least that was the case for season one to sort of preserve some of the mystery that they're trying to reveal. How much of the script or your script or your pages did you get and when, and then how disorienting is that as a process? No, it's, um, uh, yeah, it looks like you, you get sent like CIA redacted (laughs) dossiers. Um, and it's frustrating. It's totally frustrating. Um, I like to, I work, um, I, I do a lot of dream work. I do a lot of animal work, a lot of dream work for my characters in my work. And it's very rewarding. It's a lot of fun. Um, it also, it just provides a lot of insight into the choices that, um, my characters are going to make consciously and subconsciously. So when you only get these little chip chops, you're like, oh, I want, I, I, you know, you're, you're, you're just, you're salivating for more. Um, but the story itself is so much like a dream and maybe one that's not just lucid, but, you know, like um, drug induced, you know, you're just all over the place. So I feel like it, the, the, it, clearly the process works for the creation of the show, but I also felt like maybe me having these these huge gaps and divides in what my character knows and doesn't know potentially was helpful. That was my only way of justifying it. Um, but I'll tell you, it certainly makes for a more interesting viewing for me as an audience member. I'm like, wow, you, you, there we are, like on the red carpet, like for the premiere of the of the show on Hollywood Boulevard, and 
you're turning around and going, oh my God, like Julia, how are you? Great. Are so, I know you, are you in, are you in the show? Cause you don't know if they're there like as like a publicity event or if they're actually you know, <laughs> participating in the show. Like, yes, no, I am. Oh, great. What episodes? I think four, six and eight. I'm not sure yet. Uh, okay. Well, world, well, I don't actually know. Cause I, you know, so we're all kind of putting together the pieces ourselves at the actual premiere episode of the show. So it, it certainly makes for fun watching cause it's, I don't even know, you know, right. where some of these scenes ended up. That's hilarious. It's amazing. Um, and you, of course, you have this option, you know, never say never, because you're playing a host, you have an option of coming back either in flashbacks or in future or whatever, you know, like we can't claim a, an exploding credit is the end of you on Westworld. What does that do for you sort of artistically to know that so many things are potentially up in the air? That's a great question. Um, well, I think Westworld is a good example um, of, you know, I, I am in habit, um, in a habit of, of not using the words never or always. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're ever trying to digest or um, dissect Westworld, you should not say never or always with anything at any time. Um, so there's always an opportunity, you know, I mean, could be, there, there, there's, there's surely an opportunity um, to go back. Uh, but when you, I, I guess when you, when you approach it as an actor, um, you're kind of, I, I think it's kind of, you know, it, it's like climbing a mountain, you know, you can, see, you, you try to see as much of the mountain as possible, but on the day you're kind of like, uh, you're just one, uh, you know, you're one one hook or one grab at a time and you kind of only see three feet ahead of you. And if, if you're going to use like the mountain analogy, it's like an indoor rock climbing gym where, where the top just keep, you know, like when you were climbing up and then it goes down a little bit, you're like on one of those climbing machines. So I guess you're just trying to be like as honest and truthful with what you've created that you're bringing to this little rock climbing machine, but you're just going one grab, one authentic grab at a time and then adjusting and readjusting. I don't know if that metaphor works. That's the first time I've used it, but, but that, I think that's how I, I think that's how I approached Westworld season two with Major Craddock because you just don't know like what they're going to walk into your trailer and go, okay, because like Lisa would do that a lot. She'd come in the trailer, she'd say, okay, I have this idea. Or what do you think about this? I got so excited, obviously, when I saw you in that party scene. I think it's episode two, uh, and we were talking about this on on the podcast about how the concept of that scene is kind of blown for those of us who are like oh there's Jonathan Tucker oh my god this everyone must be host um but what what direction were you you know there's a part where you just like sort of glintingly I would say is the word I would use sort of look at Ben Barnes's characters he's walking through what kind of direction did you get for that scene um well I was thrilled because you know the way in which the scheduling worked out I could shave for that scene (laughs) <laughs> I was so I was just like skipping to set. I was so happy that the scheduling had worked out um, where I could have this Confederate mustache, you know, facial hair piece for all the work that we had previously done, and then could be sh- clean shaven for this. That uh, that was very exciting to me, um, and it was really about I guess on the I mean one like we actually are like standing there frozen. Like it's that old, what was that old, that like late eighties, early nineties show where the lead character put her fingers together and like everything stopped. You know that show? Yeah. Out of this world. 
out of this world. It was like out of this world. Great show. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. <laughs> That's all I remember. I remember like <laughs> watching out of this world and seeing those characters. You could, you'd notice like they were definitely trying to stand still. They weren't like frozen by the They were like camera. wobbling a, a little. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what we did. I don't know if they changed it. Like if they tune it up in post-production, but they're like, and freeze. And you're just frozen. Um, <laughs> So, no, the direction was just, it, it, was, it was just that these robots, um, these hosts are so of such high quality. It's the best they've ever made that they're, they're basically um, indiscernible uh, or indistinguishable, forgive me, from a human being. Um, so all of a sudden this guy's walking in and um, he's just kind of, he's the one giving you a funny look. And that's kind of part of the fun, and one of some of the fun aspects of playing a host, a robot with artificial intelligence. You, 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 can, you can make up some of the interior yourself as an actor uh, in conjunction, of course, with Lisa and Jonah and the rest of their wonderful writer's room. Is, is like if I try new food, for instance, or like in the opening scene in 202 with that kind of like Last Supper tableau. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like feeling the grease in my hands or like, tasting that meat in my mouth and, and like have you know allowing those calculations to then be a part of um that character almost seamlessly but not but not perfectly seamless um you know constantly discovering things as as the robot as the artificial intelligence and then incorporating them into that character moving forward but it, it, like little micro learning so to speak um, yeah, and with with the the scene um, with that cocktail scene in the in two hundred two, um, the idea of this guy's looking at me funny. I'm not looking at him funny. Mm-hmm. Why is he Why is he walking around? I'm having a, a regular conversation with somebody else. Why is he giving me any more uh, attention? I'm so glad you mentioned the the Last Supper thing. I'm, that means I'm going to hop, skip, and, and jump ahead a few questions and ask you about that. Um, uh, you know, when you line up a bunch of people on one side of the table, like that's that's uh, that's a little Last Supper clue usually. Um, but does that put Craddock then in some kind of Jesus or Messiah position? And if so, like, is that just in his own mind or do you think that works for the larger themes of the show to put him? I, I think the playing with, um, with Jesus and some of these biblical themes and stories, um, the idea of bringing somebody back to life, um, mm-hmm. as Evan Rachel Wood's character does in that scene. Um, a lot of those bigger themes, I, 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 I'm always playing with and incorporating. Um, but I don't, want to read any I don't want to I I didn't make any grand I didn't make any clear decisions about what I was representing in terms of direct characters like Jesus then I wanted to ask you about 204 because you've got this scene in the church where you're like drinking from a chalice and all this sort of stuff yeah it's fun to talk about this the church scene and with and and if you're going to tie it back to the the last supper tableau I mean bigger themes of like what do we do when we're playing God what do we do when we are in control of other people's destinies and our own. And what does it mean to search for glory? You mentioned animal work earlier. And that's something I love to talk to actors about. What did you specifically do for this part animal work wise? I did a bunch. I did a lot of feathers, like, like a lot of big birds. 
So like yeah. how birds with their necks, how they kind of like, like there's a lot of horizon work, a lot of sky work, um, like relationship to the skies looking at, you know, that, that, that was where I went. And it's, it, it's very helpful because, you know, you're jumping into these projects and everything's at a hundred miles an hour. And as a, as an actor, mm-hmm. you're the last person like dropped into this, this flowing river. And so you just got to like be equipped with your paddle and your boat and your supplies. Cause you're going like once, you know, this thing is happening. I, I'm, I have a few projects I've developed and it, you know, it can be years. I mean, it can literally, literally be years before you go to camera. And now, you know, having, having had the experience of developing material, I look at actors, I'm like, Oh God, these guys coming in last minute, <laughs> you know, getting to like, just get a jump, you know, have joking around at craft service, fooling around in rehearsal. And they're just like coming in front of the camera, saying some lines and going home. I'm like, man, we've been working on this thing for years. <laughs> so, so, you know, my point is like, if, if, if everything is moving so fast and all these decisions from production design to what their shot list looks like, uh, to wardrobe and hair, makeup and sets and all the I mean, locations have all been made up. Like you, you have to be ready to run and, you know, animals, you just drop any animal into a space and they know exactly what they're going to do. Like they know what, where there's, they know what space to hide in or where to make the biggest mating call or the greatest place of like, uh, you know, of dominance. They they just know how to move through places. And I'm very concerned with movement. And if I don't have an animal to work with, I feel slightly lost in terms of what that movement's going to be. From that last supper, how do you stand up? And walk over to her to her because there's so many different animals, so many so much so many different choices to make in that movement. Um, and I, I, I on a show like Westworld, there's not. Um, I don't know. That's not true. On any show you do, on any project, you just you want to you just want to be your best. You know. So you better you better you better come come ready to play. Because of the way you hop around, you get you got to, you know, work a little bit with. Ben, not very much, but you get to work with Evan, you get to work with James, and you get to work with Ed Harris. Like, you get to hit, like, these major players through your arc. Um, what was it What was it like, like, knowing that you get to work with Evan, who you've known for so long, or maybe Ed Harris, who is, like, such a, you know, die-in-the-wall legend? Like, what is what is that like for you? Um, Evan, she's a you know, very, very special woman um, on so many levels. Uh, it's just it, 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 there's a sense of comfort with her and ease. We just it's like we grew up in the same school, you know, um, which we kind of literally did. Um, we uh, have an acting coach named Andrew McGarran who really kicked off the careers of a whole generation of actors here in Los Angeles. Uh, getting to work with Ed Harris, uh, you know, man, I, I've, I've seen him on stage. Um, three, four times, I've seen all of his movies. I, I'm a huge fan. It, it, it's, it's, it's thrilling. It was more thrilling to see his work habits than maybe it was to work with him, maybe. I haven't said that out loud, but I guess until now, so I'm, I'm going to chew through it as I'm talking to you. Um, because, you know you, you know, you don't go into these things like starstruck. You go in there like, you go in there like I'm going to work. So you don't, I don't want, I don't certainly want to work with a polite actor. I want to work, and by that I mean to say like in character on the day in the scene. In the same way, you don't want to go into, you know, a boxing ring um, and and 
spar with somebody who's like giving you shots. You want to go in there and really, you know, bang. So, um, what's impressive is when you get to see somebody that you admire and love be better, even better than you thought they'd be just on set, just how they treat other people and what the work habits are like. And you realize, Oh, this is why, um, this is why Ed Harris has been around for as long as he has doing such good work because I've worked with other actors um, who will go unnamed, who, you know, I've, I've hit them when they've had some real heat, um, and they haven't been as kind or as generous to people who maybe at that point they thought didn't have much to offer them. Um, and you know, that, that you can laugh, you can last a lot. Um, you can last for a while being, uh, unprofessional, but you can't last forever. And and the role will certainly won't continue to come to you because you got to spend time with these people and you're spending, it's incredible how if you show up prepared, you have a point of view, you've done the work and you can find some dynamism or magic in the air on the day in front of the camera, um, completely open to the, to the world. And you're a nice person. It's like, you all of a sudden, you know, you start doing that for a few years. It's a shockingly effective method to continue working. People go, God, oh, that guy's great. Love to hang out with that guy. It's surprising how hard that is for some people. Did you put out something yesterday? Can you tell, will you, will you reiterate to your listeners what you said? Oh, I just said that, you know, having worked in this business for a couple of years, um, every time I mentioned someone I admire, someone's <laughs> like, oh, here's a story about them being a trash person. And then you're like, oh, well, I just, I just. Yeah. I, so I, I laughed out loud reading that. I was like, gosh, I don't, I have so many stories like that. But for the most part, like really, for the most part, Bad behavior doesn't pay off. While we're on the subject of comeuppance, elemental evil is something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking to me. Do you think that, at least in this episode, that Craddock exists as a sort of elemental evil force uh, in this town? That scene in the church is about as evil as it possibly gets. I just, I guess I never saw him as purely evil, even though there's so many things he's doing is so evil. I think there's like a great deal of um, being a I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm not really all that keen to defend any of his actions. And it's also hard to say what's evil in these places where he's not even a human being. I don't look at a tiger stalking prey and be like, "Oh, that's an evil tiger." I'm like, "That's just a tiger." And if this guy is just a hungry animal after after glory, you know. When you say glory, he's striving for glory. When you are portraying that character, what does that destination mean to you as you put that character together? It could be heaven, um, uh, somebody who's desperately hungry looking for food, somebody who's parched, thirsty, looking for water, you know, uh, 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 um, pilgrims going to, going to Jerusalem or to Mecca. Any of those, like when you start putting together all of these different ideas of what that looks like, and it also looks like a leopard go- going after food, going after that incredible piece of uh, of meat out there. It's so interesting that you keep you keep bringing up these sort of like big game cats when talking about the character, and I'm so, I so I kind of <laughs> like circle back to this bird thing. Like, what what was it about birds that you that you focused on when like? I, uh, by the way, look at for I, I could have gone with the hawk example, which is kind of which is actually where I went. That we all understand, uh, just in the sake of conversation, like we understand those um, 
those game animals, the bigger game animals very clearly. But like it would be a hawk, like scanning on the horizon in the sky with the feather, you know, feeling the feathers on the back. It was a lot about horizon lines and a connection between like the earth and the heavens. When you play a character that gets blown up to bits and pieces, um, are you at all involved? Like, is that your back retreating or is that only a stunt person? And if it's not you involved, do you get to watch your avatar get blown up uh, in some way or another? I did get to watch the, um, I did, I did get to watch the explosion of my, of my double. Um, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Like, do, do I, yeah. Oh yeah. I got to sit back as that rain is pouring and watch myself explode. And they, that, <laughs> they, they did a very good job. <laughs> there were pieces of there were pieces of of Major Craddock um, all over that set. <laughs> is there um, is that surreal at all? I mean, I know you've done a million things in your in your long career, but is it? it I I, lo- I mean the way I the way uh, the Man in Black disposes of my character was pretty unique, and I thought holy epic. It was a great two nights too because we, you know we're out there. Two, about two hours north of California, we've got eight rain trucks lined up all night, which have, I don't know, you know, 20,000 gallons of water in them. Um, and we're just out there in the cold rain. It's like, it's like a cold shower, like a full cold shower, and you're doing it all night. And <clears throat> going back to, like, what kind of habits are the right habits to have um, in front of the camera and off, you just kind of you got to go, all right, as you're driving to work, you're like, all right, it's going to be a cold night. It's going to be pretty miserable. Everyone's going to be pretty miserable. You're going to be crawling through actual horse manure mm-hmm. and dirt that's going to be sopping wet, and you're going to be crawling through it and pushing, pushing a line with your chin, uh, and then you're going to get hooked in the mouth by Ed Harris's hands and fingers, uh, and you're going to do that until the sun comes up for the next you know, 14 hours. You're gonna do it for two days in a row. <laughs> You're like, all right, we're just gonna we are gonna have the best attitude about this as we possibly can, because um, there's it, it's a it's pretty binary. You're like either absolutely you're in a great attitude or you are a total pain to be around. So um, I I I I sided with the former, and we made the best of it. And you know there is also you're also like wow this is as horrible as this is it's still pretty it's pretty amazing. But anyway, that is it for us this week. I think um, we will be back, obviously, next week. Until then, Richard, where can people find your work? I'm on Twitter at Rylas, R-I-L-A-W-S. And, you know, I'm writing on VF.com. I am also writing on VanityFair.com, uh, where Richard and I do another podcast called Little Gold Men. And you can also find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth and produced by Dave Gonzalez and Katie Rich. We will see you next time. These violent delights and violent ends. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? 
Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.